0: Hi, my name's Tori, and I wish I knew more about blood products. Hi, my name's Leticia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work. Hi, my name is Olivia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in a team and solve conflict.
1: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
2: I'm Jesse Spur and this is a podcast by For and With, the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
1: Hello, my name is Liz Crowe.
2: I'm Jesse Spur.
1: Welcome to another episode of Five Things, and today we are absolutely delighted to be welcoming back Professor Ian Coombs, who is the Director of Pharmacy here at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, and today Ian is going to talk to us about the five most common medication errors. Welcome back, Ian.
0: It's lovely to be back, Liz and Jesse. Thank you very much for having me.
2: Awesome. We're not going to make you retread the same intro as in the first episode that we spent with you. So we'd love to hear a little bit about your research background and uh, yeah, anything you think might be interesting to the listeners.
0: Oh, thanks, Jesse. That's good of you to delve back into the past. I guess one of the things having an inquiring mind was that my PhD was to investigate why well intended junior doctors make prescribing mistakes. And, and I think the key thing that we learned from that was that even though everybody felt they had just let down the patient and the team and stuffed up, there were an average four four factors and things that went wrong. And we learned through collaboration with a great psychologist with a name called James Reason, who is the man who invented the whole Swiss cheese model, that it's never one thing that leads to errors. It's always error chains. And I think that's something I've tried to take with me when we look at a system approach to how we make things safer for ourselves, the patients, but also, of course, the sad second victims who are the clinicians who can sometimes be involved. And we were lucky enough, I was lucky enough to be involved with things like developing the National Medicine Chart and some of the training programs for for doctors and nurses and and pharmacists that we use now, which may have gone some way to make things a little bit safer.
1: Terrific. All right, so we're going to look at the five most common medications where errors are made. Uh, Your number one is paracetamol, analgesics and other painkillers. Tell us about that.
0: Oh, look, I think that I was trying to think of probably one of the potentially most simplest medicines which you can go and buy in large quantities in the supermarket. Um, However, as we know and we're talking offline before that in the wrong dose, paracetamol in the wrong patient or even in a normal dose, to a small but malnourished elderly patient we know has caused fatal liver failure. Um, And I think that even the simple slip laps that in a hospital setting patients could be prescribed both regular and of course in addition as required medicines or in combination paracetamol with other analgesics is how people can run into problems with, with an overdose. And I think whilst that's the simplest analgesia, we realize that there is, of course, a, a range of other medicines. And, and some of the things, again, often seen as very innocuous that you could buy as tablets, capsules, or liquids, like a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory such as ibuprofen or diclofenac, which are great for things like my sore knee from tennis. But again, if you've got heart failure or renal impairment or you've got a you know a significantly brittle hypertension or a, a, an inflamed mucosal lining of your stomach... You know, those drugs themselves can cause significant problems. So it's something which has to be, again, looked at as a simple medicine, but in the right patients and not in the wrong dose and not always the medicine that it, particularly analgesia just gets given while stopping and thinking, is it actually working? Is it actually what the patient needs?
2: Seeing another rise, I've noticed in over the counter um, combination analgesics again. So paracetamol with caffeine is another is one that I've seen recently coming in. Um, paracetamol ibuprofen combinations, yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I guess that throws both co- um, concerns for a person buying and using their own medication, but also when we're taking medication history.
0: No, I think that's, that's a great point. Um, so the two two things there. One is sometimes. Patients will think that this is an additive beneficial agent because they're getting a combination of drugs. Some of the cold and flu things have a combination of paracetamol plus a, a decongestant as well as caffeine or another sedative in them or, or an antihistamine And I think that, you know, often people will then, if they're asked, will just say, oh, it's just paracetamol or it's just ibuprofen. But in fact, as we know, the devil again is in the detail. So the combination medicines are marketed as being stronger and more powerful and quicker acting, but are well worth actually asking, is that straightforward paracetamol or ibuprofen? Um, And and often it's not. So it can be a problem, Jesse, Good point.
1: Can I ask a really basic question? Because you hear this very frequently amongst parents or amongst adults who have headaches. What is the correct prescribing for paracetamol and ibuprofen around things? Because you hear people who take them in combination. Oh, I took two Panadol and two Nurofen or I took a Nurofen uh, and then in two hours I take Panadol and then another two hours I take Nurofen. Like what is the correct prescription around that? Because everybody seems to have a different viewpoint.
0: So – I'll put that question back to you to reiterate that the correct prescription should be the the dosing of the medicines that will work for that individual patient. So, if the you know, the two drugs also work quite differently because the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen are obviously predominantly an anti-inflammatory, so for things that are a muscle injury or uh, something which is linked to an inflammatory issue then they would be potentially a first-line drug over paracetamol, and paracetamol is more of a direct analgesic. With regards to taking one medicine and then taking another, scientifically makes some sense, because you obviously have to absorb a drug, it gets into the system, it starts working, it wears off. If you take everything at the same time, it's then all going to wear off at slightly different times. So some people do stagger their medicines. For your children, you might be for their fevers or their aches and pains, you might use one medicine and then you try, if that paracetamol didn't settle them down, you might try ibuprofen. But you've got to remember all of these drugs, whilst beneficial, potentially have problems, particularly non-steroidals.
1: Thanks for clarifying. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Your number two is um, around insulin and other diabetic medicines, because there are now so many on the market. Um, What do people need to, you know, bedside nurses in particular, what do we need to consider?
0: Oh, look, I think it's a really good point that having been around in healthcare for, for quite a number of years, the number of medicines, be it for people to take orally for their diabetes, so patients who are theoretically non-insulin-dependent diabetics or old sort of type 2 diabetics, there are now a wide range of medicines. The the older medicines such as metformin are still of great benefit to patients and they've got evidence that they help prevent heart attacks, etc., and strokes. Um, And they are medicines which, again, we have to look at the individual patient about optimizing the dose because they can have problems and sometimes people feel that they, they can make people a bit nauseous, but potentially one of the cynical side to drugs like metformin is they actually help people lose weight because you actually eat less. But then you can leap forward to some of the newer medicines, which actually have you know many other benefits for cardiovascular drugs, such as the flows in group of medicines. But they also might increase the incidence of urinary tract infections. And they have some other incidents associated with ketoacidosis, which, which again, 95-99% of patients will be fine. But particularly with diabetes, there's a issue both knowing exactly what medicine people take and what dose they take and what combination, because like Jesse's question about analgesia, increasingly diabetic medicines are coming as combinations. So while somebody might think they just take metformin, when you actually look at the box or the label, it's actually metformin plus citagliptide, it's metformin plus empagliflozin. So there's actually two different drugs working in two different ways with two different lots of side effects. Um, so the range of medicines is is Very broad and right. And I think it's confusing. It's certainly confusing to me, even as a pharmacist, to work out who isn't working in diabetes all the time to know which order you can use medicines because some medicines are only subsidized on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme if you've had one medicine versus the other.
1: So, in terms of medication errors, like, would one of the big problems with this medication be around fasting? Like, where where are people getting caught up as a bedside nurse or as a junior doctor?
0: So I think there, there are a number of things. So we certainly know that before people have surgical procedures or other operations where they're nil by mouth, the patient needs to have a clear tailored plan for their medicines to be withheld because we know if medicines are continued during the procedure, clearly if they're not eating or getting a glucose intake, they will potentially go hypoglycemic. But we also know other medicines, such as the Flozin group of medicines, that they can increase the incidence of diabetic ketoacidosis. So they have to be withheld before the procedure as well. That's without going into the whole plan for insulin, because patients, of course, can have insulin, which they might be taking long-acting insulin together with bolus doses, or even now continuous insulin pumps, which... And certainly in years gone by, people didn't even know to look for under the clothing when patients were admitted that they had a continuous insulin pump going and correspondingly could have got quite significant hypoglycemia. So patients really, again, need to be looked at with a thorough history taken of what medicines are taking for their diabetes. But certainly from an error point of view, not only with insulin are there different types that link to short and long acting, but there's now actually three concentrations So the risk is instead of having 100 units per mil, it's actually 300 and 500. So the risk of if a patient is using a different insulin and the person administering it isn't aware that it's three or even five times the strength, you can imagine the potential error is significant. So the insulin problems we think we got away with years ago by people getting tenfold errors because we didn't write it up properly, a lot of that goes away with electronic prescribing and electronic medication administration. But we've now got three different strengths of insulin and we've had some very significant incidents we've had to investigate where inadvertently people have had significant overdoses.
2: I think with the complexity, like I reflect back to it wasn't that long ago, nudging towards 15 years ago that I was a nursing student, and it was really like insulin and oral hypoglycemics. You could do a, like a two-pronged yep. flowchart, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, yeah. With that additional complexity, and we're seeing this universally across healthcare beyond just medicines, um, we shift to having to... My, my cognitive bump shift with that is going, I need to think about the diabetic management plan for yeah. this patient yes. rather than going, oh, this patient's on insulin and yep. metformin.
0: yeah. Yeah, no, look, you've beautifully summarized it, that there has to be a tailored individual plan. and, And of course, ideally, you begin by asking the patient what they do at home and what is their plan. And many patients manage their insulin very well. And they manage their overall diet and their combination of tablets. If they're on tablets and insulin together, they do manage that well. But there are some patients who don't have a sick day plan, for example. And we Unfortunately, saw a number of patients even just the other week on on a medical admitting round, where where patients hadn't really been informed that because they two of them had COVID and they'd got unwell and they had a sore throat and they weren't eating and they weren't particularly drinking and they came in with significant side effects, ketoacidosis and lactic acidosis, because they continued to take their medicines whilst not having the diet. And and I think that patients need to have clarity around that plan and and all of the healthcare team, nursing staff, particularly when they're coming to administer medicines to patients, need to be looking at the person, looking at their BGLs before they give those medicines and thinking, are they nil by mouth? Are they eating? You know, Is their food sitting on the tray still uneaten in front of them before they actually give those medicines?
2: I think the other thing in terms of like these cognitive habit-forming things that I do with these newer medications are all hyperglycemic agents and different drugs is this rise of euglycemic ketoacidosis. keto-acidosis. Yeah. So actually, I, I that for me, that's been a shift of going, don't use an abnormal blood sugar to trigger me taking a, a, a ketone measure on a patient, going, use the patient being unwell or something changed in their condition to add doing a ketones test to my blood glucose test.
0: Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, that again, uh, getting probably a bit past out of my scope to an extent, but certainly the, the flows in group of gl- drugs are the ones that are associated with that euglycemic, so normal blood glucose, but a ketoacidosis, which is why it's very important that before procedures we check that they have withheld those medicines because that's that's a key where that whole stress factor during a procedure or surgery seems to be a trigger for the risk of uh, euglycemic DKA. Yeah, good point, Jess.
1: Wonderful. So number three is we're looking at heparin, lexane and other anticoagulants.
0: So again, the reason really I just wanted to flag uh, these medicines is that when I was growing up as a boy and and maybe when Jesse was a a younger nursing student, the medicine warfarin used to sort of come almost with a skull and crossbones because it was a complex medicine where the dose varied hugely for each patient and we had to take blood tests of international normalized ratios of INR and it was quite unpredictable so of course we then replace that drug with a new silver bullet called the direct acting oral anticoagulants, such as rivaroxaban or apixaban and we give everybody the same dose and magically believe that a drug which is cleared by the kidneys by like a number of other drugs which is going to have a large variation in people's response probably in some ways takes us off our guard and we certainly cannot forget that somebody who is anticoagulated with a new safer inadverted commons, oral anticoagulant, is just as at risk of bleeding if they fall, if they have a procedure and we don't know that they're fully anticoagulated or they have surgery, um, or if we're inserting lines into people and they're fully anticoagulated or they're going to their dentist, they are just as likely to have significant major bleeding complications. And at the moment, They cannot be readily reversed. There is a new agent coming out that will be a reversal agent to them. It's extremely expensive. The country hasn't worked out how we're going to pay for it or when we're going to use it. Uh, And I think that it's just we need to be mindful that people who just say, oh, I just take Zeralto or I just take Eloquist, these new safe oral anticoagulants, they do, in the studies, have the same benefit in preventing clots and potentially less bleeds, but we do still see people who have significant bleeds for the drugs that are given parentally, we don't have many patients nowadays who have to have be wired up to a pump with continuous injections of uh, infusions of IV heparin so we use intermittent subcutaneous injections of drugs like enoxaparin but again introduced as a silver bullet studied in a group of patients who didn't have poor renal function who weren't fat who weren't very thin that there's, again, where the devil is in the detail is actually tailoring those drugs to the individual patients because we know that we actually need to look at the individual patient for the dose. We need to know the weight of the patient, which is very important when we're dosing the therapeutic doses of enoxaparin or Clexane as the trade name. But we also we can at least now monitor that drug. So we do have the ability to look at factor 10A to know whether or not people are likely to be at risk of bleeding or whether or not they're likely to be clotting if the drug level is too low. But certainly the anticoagulant group is still one of the most consistent drugs where where we get things wrong, they sadly can go extremely wrong. And the window, the index or the therapeutic window for these drugs, the margin between where they work to help prevent clots and where they put people at significant risk of bleeding is quite significant. And it can, in fact, also link, of course, to inadvertently stopping it or reducing the dose too far, and then that can lead people to the risk of clotting. And I think that it's one of the areas where we've significantly improved, this makes things more simple because we don't have to intensely monitor like we did with heparin or with warfarin, but we still have that importance of tailoring the individual drug to the individual patient. And as a nurse stopping and thinking, why are they on this is a good question, what is it for? Do I need to give this dose now? Do I need to check anything else? And I guess, as always, if in doubt, check.
2: It's definitely something I remember like with somewhat of a twitch is even the different brands of warfarin oh, and the yes. Maravan and Coumadin yes. um, yes. were, yes. were viewed – like very different drugs. Yeah. And I guess that that forced a, a daily thinking about those medications, yeah. which was, I would say, very beneficial and that has maybe slipped. There's been adaptations to medication charts to having an anticoagulation section yep. in the medication yep. charts, but that's kind of, to right. me, trying to replicate – the thinking that was kind of forced upon us with having to daily review. Yep. Um, certainly during acute phase or the commencement phase of uh, warfarin.
0: And Jesse, that's a really interesting point. So being fortunate enough to be part of the team who developed the med chart and why we put on that section for warfarin was because when it used to be written up regularly, we knew that there tended to be more risk of bleeding because people would be written up for a regular dose. Whereas when you people are in hospital and there's other drugs being added and people are unwell and they're pausing and stopping medicines, we have to do the monitoring more frequently and we have to respond to that. And certainly we knew from studies that when we put that section of the chart in, that we actually forced people to dose based on their INR or their blood test. So it was a bit like putting decision support in front of the clinician so that if a nurse went to dose the drug or went to administer the drug and there hadn't been the daily dose written up, they'd speak to the prescriber. We actually moved the time of the dose, if you remember, from 6 o'clock to 4 o'clock. So when they rang, they didn't get Johnny Ward call, who had 30 patients to look after they'd never seen before, but they actually had the team... Um, a doc- team doctor to speak to who knew about the patient, who hopefully knew the indication and knew what the plan was. And what we showed is we significantly reduced the bleeding and improved the management of warfarin by actually tailoring that. But now it's just written up as a regular drug, is actually often m- more likely that people end up with a duplication where they might be on another anticoagulant, for example, VTE prophylaxis. And then on page three of the second chart, they'll have rivaroxaban regularly and you'll find out they're getting them both simultaneously, which didn't used to happen because the system, from a human factor road bump point of view, was set up that you had your VTE next to your warfarin. And so the actual brain trigger trip for even that busy, hungry, angry, late, tired, well-intended person may well trip, pick it up and, and didn't give the dose inadvertently.
1: Um, if I'm a bedside nurse, and uh, we've just started an anticoagulant for the first time and the patient's going to go home for the first time taking something, should I be flagging or would the pharmacist do this, I don't know, that, you know, to be really mindful if you have a heavy fall, if you're going to the dentist, if you're having anything minor, if you cut yourself, that maybe bleeding and risk has changed So make sure you're always alert your healthcare professional around this.
0: Brilliant. You, you really hit most of the key messages there on, on the head. And I think that that is it is a critical point to almost need to, in a way, consent patients. So they do know that this drug is of great benefit. If they've got atrial fibrillation, it'll be significantly reduce their risk of a stroke. If they've had a clot in their leg or their lung or elsewhere, it'll significantly reduce the risk of another clot. Never 100%, it'll reduce the risk. However, you're exactly right. They need to know that if they do bump or cut or break something, then there is a higher chance that they will bleed longer and to a greater extent. And it is something, again, which is potentially not so such much of a flag. People used to have to have their warfarin book because they had to get a blood test and they'd be sent off to a different laboratory with a go take this dose for a certain days, then get this test. It's now almost a set and forget. There's a loading dose period for a couple of weeks, But once you're on that dose, it tends to say the same. So I think from that patient perspective of risk, benefit and necessity and concern we talked about a few weeks ago, that it's really something that we need patients to be aware of. And quite honestly, the prescribers hopefully have had that conversation with the patient when they start it. And the pharmacists need to talk to the patients about it during their stay or on discharge. And every time the nurse comes to the bedside, it is a perfect opportunity to say, now, you're aware we've started this or we've changed this warfarin to this drug and this is what it's doing Mm. because getting the patients to begin to understand is such a paramount point for the patients to adhere to the medicines and be able to achieve the benefits from the medicines but also to minimise their risks. Mm. Okay so our number four
1: is vancomycin and other antibiotics.
0: I think it's really just there's been a recent couple of incidents linked to vancomycin as there are with a number of antibiotics, where great drug, very effective. Again, we like all antibiotics, we want to be concerned about not inappropriately or just sort of flagrantly using it because of the risk of antimicrobial resistance. But it's also a drug that has problems associated with how we physically give it. So it's want to give it too quickly because if we infuse it too quickly, it can cause an infusion-related reaction called the red man syndrome. But also we know that sometimes on its own or particularly in combination with other antibiotics, that if patients' drug levels are not monitored and the dose not adjusted, it can potentially worsen our renal function. So a good drug, but again, something which has its potential risks to be balanced against its benefits. All other antibiotics, there's a plethora of antibiotics which we use. And we're very fortunate in this hospital, like a lot of hospitals now, that we have antimicrobial stewardship services which help our doctors and our nurses use our antibiotics judiciously and appropriately because probably the reason to flag them as being error-prone is that it's probably the fact that we sometimes use the inappropriate antibiotic for an infection where things might be too broad, so a broad-spectrum antibiotic rather than a simpler antibiotic. So the error is really the fact that ultimately if we continue to use broad-spectrum antibiotics in the wrong patients at the wrong time, they simply will not work.
2: Okay. And I guess there are another group that seems more prone to allergic reaction or adverse reaction.
0: Thank you very much. Sorry, and I didn't write written that down. But I think, yeah, Jesse's right. When it comes to actually patients having a risk of a previous reaction or an allergy and getting re-exposed to a drug, the antibiotic group are way up there. And often that is, again, because we use combination drugs so whilst people sort of get drummed into them in medical nursing pharmacy school about penicillins, when you start talking about Piptaz and Timentin, people actually forget that there's a penicillin component in there. But patients don't think about a Piptaz allergy. They'll know that they were told not to have penicillins again because as a child they had reaction, you know, significant reaction. So That's a really good point, Jesse. Thank you.
1: And what about, um, again, bringing it back to the bedside nurse, um, someone's come in on antibiotics uh, because they saw their GP who was kind of a bit concerned started some antibiotics but actually we've found out really what the cause is it's led them to come into hospital at what point should we be asking questions uh you know should this antibiotic be ceased you know like in terms of you know like what's the role that we can all play about saying you know how is this the right drug you know is this the right drug at the right time uh, I, th-
0: I think that we probably as a developed country, we have access to an awful lot of medicines and we have access to an awful lot of broad spectrum antibiotics. I think the risk is that people will often come into hospital present with an infection, source not necessarily identified, exact organism not identified, but they clinically respond after a couple of doses of an intravenous drug. The the sort of clinical desirability is, oh, we'll just give them another day or another two days. Whereas I think there is certainly good evidence that many medicines can be de-escalated, particularly if you get back sensitivities and we can put people onto oral medicines or, in fact, if there isn't an infective source, then, as you say, we stop it. And in a number of cases, certainly we know that a shorter course of antibiotics is just as effective as a week or two weeks.
1: Right. Number five is looking at cardiac medicines, particularly within an acute hospital setting.
0: Thank you. So I, I think this is sort of a little bit of a personal thing, but it, it's actually based on good evidence that I think a lot of our nursing colleagues have now been trained for some time about the pincher acronym, which links to the potassium and insulin and narcotics uh, and other medicines, but it doesn't talk about cardiac medicines. And, and we've done research here at the Royal Brisbane uh, where we've been looking at um, medical emergencies that are potentially linked to medicine-related causes And certainly, whilst we're only sort of halfway through going through the analysis of a series of cases, that there seems to be a consistent theme where patients either are omitted a medicine, be it a a beta blocker or a vasodilator drug such as an ACE inhibitor or a And in fact, when you look at the MERT, which is associated with a tachycardia or a hypertensive episode, you can actually trace it back to having key cardiac medicines omitted or patients who conversely... Are, are septic and vasodilated and hypotensive where their cardiac medicines are continued and administered and then they crash. And I think that you know they are you know, widely used for any patients with you know, uh, ischemic heart disease, but also diabetic patients end up on ACE inhibitors and ARBs and beta blockers, et cetera. And I think that you know, for a long time, they were just seen as just a sort of another routine medicine, but certainly by both omission or commission cardiac medicines are quite often associated with harm. And a big study we did at the the PA hospital looking at acute coronary syndrome patients who were readmitted with a medicine-related problem is that the medicine group there were particularly vasodilators um, and beta blockers that were associated with problems.
2: And it has both a fairly significant impact on the patient, but I would say from my experience, I worked here for nearly two years as a nurse educator for medical emergency response at Royal Brisbane Hospital, um, these sorts of MET calls related to cardiac meds nearly always end up in a change in disposition for that patient, which has a systemic impact either to coronary care or to ICU. Yeah. Um, so it has, a, a, and generally after quite a long wrestle of a MERT trying to stop that change in disposition. So there's a lot of lost time to the team, essentially futilely trying to correct the issue. Uh, to keep that patient where they are and keep them on their course of their acute hospital admission um, and then an inevitable moving to somewhere else anyway.
0: I know. I think that's a really important point, Jesse, because in a current system where we are perpetually seeking improved access to beds, the last thing we need is a preventable medication error leading to harm which extends somebody's stay or ends up them being transferred to coronary care or intensive care. And I think that one thing that a large study at the Alfred looking at 1,000-plus medical emergencies identified that 60% of these medications, errors that caused them were all preventable. And I think that, again, it's that case of looking at the individual patient. And it might be the fact that they're on a medicine like a specific type of long-acting beta blocker, which you might not have on the ward when the patient's admitted and the pharmacist hasn't had a chance to see them yet, It's a probably good flag to think it's going to be 24 hours before they get another dose. They've come in unwell with COVID. I'm actually going to make sure that I seek that medicine or contact the pharmacy to supply that medicine for that patient because, you know, 24 hours, if you're relatively well at home, missing one beta blocker dose might be okay. If you're critically unwell, the reason why you're in hospital is you're sick. You don't want to have your body suddenly cleared out of a beta blocker because things will go wrong.
2: I think it's from that same research actually from the Alfred that um, I was interested to find that essentially all of those ICU days that were added are added days to length of stay. Like they actually didn't, uh, even if the patient was continued to be treated for their reason for coming in, they essentially were just added on to their length uh, of stay in hospital. Uh,
0: absolutely. We, we looked at another medical st- study in internal medicine following patients admitted with a medicine-related problem. Um, And we looked at those patients compared to their matched control group who didn't have a medicine-related problem. They had a 50% longer length of stay. So not only are these errors potentially going to harm patients, they're also going to be associated with a second victim who is the doctor who prescribed, the nurse or the pharmacist who didn't pick it up in reviewing, but the patients stay 50% longer. This is in a hospital where every day we seem to be at a different level of pressure on beds and access and flow and I think that medicine safety and medicine error is a If we can look at the help preventing one in two, one in three, one in four of these incidents, which are preventable, we will not only help the patient, we'll actually improve access to healthcare.
1: Now we we did something very mean to you in that we said you know you can only choose five drugs that you want to talk to us about. We thought we thought we'd be generous. Is there anything else that you'd really like to talk about with regards to medications and errors?
0: I think it's hard to pick medicines in the top that are error-prone or likely to cause harm to patients. I think we really shouldn't forget, particularly in, in a hospital with a very large cancer unit, that cytotoxic medicines are something which have managed to obviously not only help put people into remission and, and effectively cure and treat many cancers, solid tumors and blood cancers, but they are also probably some of the most toxic medicines. And I think, again, what's interesting is we're seeing more errors associated with the fact that there's a lot more available oral cytotoxic agents than there would have been when I used to do cancer care in England sort of 15, 18 years ago because, you know, with an IV cytotoxic agent, there was sort of a significant sort of air of of fear around it, partly because of the exposure risk to it, but also patients were unfortunately had to be admitted. And, of course, if you're on an oral, oral cytotoxic agent now, you can be at home, which is fabulous for the patient. But these medicines are Significantly, their margin for error is extremely small between the dose for that individual patient and particularly the regimes. They usually not always just set and forget, they're complex. You take regularly for for brain cancer, you take one medicine regularly for six weeks at a low dose, then you take it intermittently for a certain time with your radiation. And these medicines are just something which I think we need to also realize are being used in lower doses for things like rheumatoid arthritis. So, on a medicine like methotrexate which commonly of course should only be given once a week is an error which can be slipped up by a well-intended admitting junior doctor in the middle of the night thinks oh you're taking methotrexate for arthritis and they write it up regularly on a daily basis so there's cytotoxic agents in cancer care but there's also a number of cytotoxic agents we use for non-cancer indications so it's probably worth just flagging that
1: let's summarize this so your number one concerning medication with error is paracetamol and other analgesics, including narcotics and painkillers. And what you wanted to really clearly make is that paracetamol in the wrong dose, uh, and I loved your uh, example of given to a frail, malnourished elderly person, can still be lethal to the liver. So we need to always remember that, you know, it is still a dangerous drug and it can't be seen as just Um, innocuous like everyone takes it therefore we've got no concerns about it and you wanted to say that people who had renal failure or heart failure or or kidney problems um, these drugs can cause significant uh, amounts of problems so we need to be always be asking you know again is this the right person right time right context and uh, also I love that you said when it comes to analgesia we need to be asking is it actually working um, you often hear this in hospitals, but also just at home where people are like, oh, I'm on these painkillers, this, this, and they also said just take, you know, paracetamol and uh, ibuprofen as well <laughs> without sort of giving a reason. Is it adding anything in addition? Your number two was on insulin and all the many other varied, broad diabetic medicines. And I guess what I was hearing with this is that there's a huge complexity now around diabetes, and that each indi- each person needs an individualized management plan. It can be lots of confusion now because of the different strengths of insulin. And there's short acting, long acting, mixed acting, and then there's three strengths of concentration. So it can be very easy, like I've just heard you say that, and I'm still, you know, having to really look at my notes and think, what is this? And so in the middle of the night, someone gets admitted. uh, It's very easy to make a mistake around dosing and prescribing. And it's also, you know, we need to be asking people about continuous insulin pumps because they're not always obvious to the naked eye. Um, And there's this huge range of meds. And when we're thinking about medication errors, we need uh, to really be thinking about fasting Anyone who's going on nil by mouth, we need to be tailoring or stopping or withholding uh, sometimes the insulin and other diabetes drugs. Uh, we need to be paying attention around hypoglycemia. And every person who has diabetes needs a sick day plan. And uh, if we're a bedside nurse, we need to be acknowledging: hang on a second, this person hasn't cleared their tray. Do they still need that same amount of insulin? So it's, I guess, with diabetes. We've we've come a long way and that's great for people with diabetes, but the the chances for error and mistake have gone up and we really need to be thinking about fasting and when people are ill. Very good. All right, number three is on heparin, clexane, and other anticoagulants um and you were saying that there you know with the new uh range of anticoagulants there's a lot of kind of a set and forget is is the way you termed it and we need to remember that these drugs have got great benefits and they also have huge risks and we need to be so careful to tailor the drug uh, to the individual patient and we need to be looking at their weight um because you know All of these things can play into how uh, the drug interacts with the, the person you're giving them to and that we want to be really careful that if we have started anticoagulants or if someone is on anticoagulants regularly, we need to reinforce to them, please remember if you have a fall, if you have a break, if you're going in for surgery, if you're going to the dentist, if someone's putting in lines, you have to mention that you are on anticoagulants Um, And because once people have a bleed, it's really hard to reverse the anticoagulant drugs. Um, They're extremely effective. And so we need to empower our patients and ourselves around anticoagulants. Hmm. Number four is on vancomycin and other antibiotics. Um, So the first thing is we need to be really mindful about allergic reactions, um, that some of these are now, I think they're teamed up with uh, a combination with penicillin so we need to be really mindful of people who are allergic to things again great drugs very effective however we need to remember that there's this constant risk and benefit uh, analysis that we need to be making we want to make sure that we're only giving antibiotics appropriately we don't want to be building up uh, resistance to uh, microorganisms is that what you'd say Um, And we don't want to be infusing if we could go to oral and that we need to constantly, we need to be judicious, I guess is what you said, about broad or simple antibiotics and that we need to de-escalate or cease wherever possible. Okay, number five was cardiac medicines and you spoke specifically around medical emergencies about how often a Code Blue or a MERT is called because people have inadvertently missed a cardiac dose. Uh, they've continued a cardiac dose that should have been uh, ceased or we've inadvertently ceased a drug that someone has really needed. So we need to constantly be looking, um, particularly you mentioned the beta blockers, uh, where we need people to actually stop and think, what are the key cardiac drugs that this person's on that we need to continue and what actually needs to stop? Because once again, they have got a huge potential for benefits and huge potential for harm. And I guess around this, we're also talking that, you know, the harm for patients is huge, but there's also secondary harm in terms of extended um, length of stay and also harm to our staff when we've accidentally made a mistake. And then we let you sneak in a number six around cytotoxics because we felt that it was really important for us to mention that these drugs are very toxic. And, you know, when they were given IV and people came out with the full PPE, there was so much awareness around how dangerous these drugs could be uh, and now that they're given orally this is great for patients they can have it at home there's a number of wonderful benefits but the the margin for error is extremely small for these uh, drugs they're extremely complex they are dangerous they can be given for other things such as arthritis we need to be very mindful that the patient is acutely aware of dosage uh, and how dangerous they are. I've got to say that was very stressful for me.
0: Um, but you did very well, Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll give you an honorary purple lanyard.
1: <laughs> but Ian, this is our second podcast with you. You've been absolutely fantastic and raising so many important issues around medications and the great benefits to them and also the great potential for harm. So thanks once again for joining us on five things
0: jesse thank you so much indeed for inviting me it's great to be able to share a few key messages with people thank you thank you
2: the royal brisbane and women's hospital five things nursing podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and Yagara as the first nations owners of the lands we now tread we pay respect to their elders laws customs and creation spirits We recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at 5thingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things.